Welcome to Video Store. I am Sam Mulberry, and today we are talking about the 1980 David Lynch film, The Elephant Man. So let's step into Barrett Fisher's video store. Barrett, how you doing? Doing well, Sam. Thanks. Uh, Barrett, this uh, this was a movie I was really excited to revisit um, because I haven't seen this since, I think, 1985. Um, and it, this has a... Uh, an interest. This this movie plays an interesting role in my life, uh, which I'll get into. But let's maybe start with your history with this film. We've talked about David Lynch uh, before, but what's your history specifically with the Elephant Man? Yeah, the Elephant Man uh, would have been the, the second Lynch film I saw because I was seeing them in the order which they were made. So I'm trying to remember. I probably had seen Eraserhead around maybe 1979, or just before this film came out. Because I know I remember going into this film knowing I was interested in Lynch because of, of, of Eraserhead. So I would have seen it the year it came out. It would have been in my college town, which I've talked about before, that little theater uh, that, that it was there, the, uh, the, the um, small theater, kind of like the, the uh, Trilon. Uh, and then I saw it again um, probably about five years later, back when VHS was still kind of a new thing. Uh, I remember watching it with my mom and a friend of my mom's. Uh, and I think that was probably the last time I saw it, which is about the first time you saw it. Okay, so what what uh, what led you to to rewatch that again in 1985? You know, we were with my mom, and she had an older friend, and he had a VCR, and somehow I don't even remember how we ended up picking that film. But I was trying to think of a movie that we would all appreciate. Somehow, it came up with The Elephant Man, which uh, I guess it, I guess as I thought about it, the sort of sentimentality of the film, and I didn't think quite so much about the Lynchian elements. Uh, I don't remember how well it was received by my Because that was my question, is how did that, how did that go over? <laughs> yeah, I think it was sort of like in the category, category that was an experience. <laughs> right. Well, well, my history with this film, uh, so in 1985, I would have been, maybe ju had just turned eight. Mm. Um, and the reason I know it was 1985 is because um, I rem because the the next day after watching this film on TV, I was I was on one of the networks, and there was a big buildup to like you know back when they would roll out you know sort of the first run of a of like a movie that had been in theaters years before, and like this is the first time it's on network TV. I remember seeing the ads for it, and um, I don't know why I was just really drawn to, I, I mean, I think it is, it, it really is the image of, of um, Merrick sort of the hooded Merrick that I'm sure was all over the um, mm -hmm. uh, was all over the ads for, for it. But I remember constantly seeing ads for that. This was going to be a, you know, Friday night movie or something. And, and I was just really drawn to wanting to watch it. And the reason that I remember this specifically is because the next day was the first time i would ever fly on an airplane so we, oh, we took no. a trip to california sure. and um it was probably a combination of watching this movie at a pretty young age and there's some stuff in here that you know i don't know as an eight-year-old i was ready to process mm -hmm. um a combination of that and flying the next day it's the first night that i can remember in my life where i didn't sleep huh so so i think it was between this movie and the sort of excitement or anxiety about this 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 flight i just remember i remember everybody else in the house was asleep and i remember sitting on the couch and just being like i cannot sleep so this movie has kind of haunted me and like i don't i didn't remember much about it there was a moment um watching it i watched it last night um where i 
I was all of a sudden hit. There, there were moments throughout the movie where I was hit by like, oh, I remember this. Mm-hmm. And I remember this being really interesting or this being really terrifying to me. Um, and it's not a movie that's particularly terrifying, but but as a kid, like the, the stuff that stuck out to me, um, I remember the opening scene of the movie. And then when you first go to the kind of carnival freak show, the explanation that Bites gives for why Merrick is deformed. Mm-hmm. I remember thinking, oh, that's why it, ha-. Like, it like it never occurred to me that that wasn't true. That, that his mother was trampled by an elephant and this is how he came out. Like that's that in my head, that was like, Oh, this is, that's what happens. And it, I clearly, and then as I watched the movie, it's like, yeah, oh, they don't really talk about this disease that he, I mean, I think it's understood, but as a kid that didn't, that didn't land on me. So I, uh, when, he, when I heard bite say that it all of a sudden hit me. That's what I thought as a kid, I just took that at face value. Um, so, so this movie had this kind of lasting impact on me um, in that way. Uh, and it was really interesting to watch again, you know, uh, what, 35 years later um, with a very different set of eyes. Uh, and I, I really, uh, I was, I will say I was not excited last night to sit down and watch it. Yesterday was a really long day at work. And I thought the last thing I want to do is watch a <laughs> two hour and 15 minute movie like this, but I really liked it. I really, I was so drawn in almost immediately. Well, you know, Mer- Merrick himself believed, and that was the story he told about his mother being frightened by the, by the elephant. That was, that was certainly his understanding or his explanation. And interestingly enough, Sam, you know, we, we actually don't have an answer to what afflicted Merrick. Um, they did genetic testing in 2003, and it was really inconclusive. There's been a couple of, been a couple of, um, diseases suggested neurofibromatosis is one um there's a very very rare uh syndrome called proteus syndrome there's only been about 200 cases noted and there's about 120 right now worldwide but um it, it, it nothing that he had was really classically t- characteristic of either one of those conditions or a number of other conditions that have been have been proposed so i i find it kind of uh interesting um that we still have this lack of a true scientific understanding of what happened to him so um i kind of like i like clinging to the myth that somehow there was a psychic uh, uh connection between the mother and the owl <laughs> yeah yeah and i will say uh speaking of mothers you talked about watching this with your mother in in 1985 i will say watching this movie made me think of my mom a lot Mm. Um, which, because part of me and, and, and part of me is thinking, man, why did my parents say, sure, go ahead, watch this? Because I don't <laughs> think they watched it with me, but they were, I remember talking about it and they were sort of totally on board. I think part of that was the 1980s. It was on network TV. So yeah, you're probably fine. Yeah. Um, but, but another piece of it is like, I, I, I need to go talk to my mom because I wonder if she knew the story mm. um, because my mom spent her entire career working with people who were severely handicapped. So she worked in the state hospital system. And in reality, this movie is right up my mom. This is my mom's kind of movie in terms mm. of like, you know, this is this person who people misunderstand and, you know, but this is a human being and this is a human being with dignity. And so so it turns out I don't know that that landed with me. That's not that wasn't my memories of the movie as a kid. I, it was a little bit, but but that stuff gets lost in probably just how weird that night was for me. But as I watched it today, I thought, man, this seems exactly like the kind of movie my mom would mm. like. My mom loved the movie Mask. Oh yeah, um, 
And it's like, yeah, like that, like this is, this is right up her alley. So I, I would never think of like a David Lynch movie as a movie my mom would really love, but actually the straight story she would like, and this movie even more so is, is right up her alley. Um, what do you think drew David Lynch to this film? Now I will say I've never seen Eraserhead. This is, that's something I, I really would like to see. I've never seen that. Um, but this is his second movie off of that. This seems um, in lots of ways, very different than that um, from what I can tell. Um, but what drew, what do you think drew him to this, and how does this fit into his body of work? Yeah, that's a good that's a good question. I mean, there's I think there's a couple of answers to it to that. Um, you know, he, actually in his uh, in Room to Dream, which is a kind of biography slash autobiography that uh, was published last year, uh, Lynch talks about um, first his agent just telling him the story about the story, and then giving him the script. And Lynch Lynch doesn't say anything really very specific about what it was. He just said he was really excited by the story. Um, I mean, when you watch the film, you can see the things that, it, that interested Lynch about it. Um, you have a lot of kind of typical Lynchian tropes. You know, he loves... Uh, he loves in, in images of industrialization. Um, I think if you think about Eraserhead, though, you know one of the things that Eraserhead uh, also deals with is the um, the, 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 the 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 issue of um, the, the the deformed or, or odd child, uh, the issue of of what is human or isn't human. Uh, wh one of the great lines in Eraserhead is Mary is talking about what she's given birth to, and she says they aren't even sure it is a baby. Um, so I think I think Lynch is drawn to those liminal spaces where you know what's the line between on the one hand human and inhuman and on the other line uh other end human and machine uh and i just think you know the the fact that uh, merrick was obviously a very odd uh version of a human being i think that that's that's always of interest uh, to lynch um one of the the things that i found interesting and I'm, I'm sure you've read this because this came up in lots of places was uh roger ebert's review of this movie because ebert did not like this movie um oh. i i found the stuff he said interesting i just don't know that i i don't think i necessarily agree with him um but i mean he it's interesting because you've already said the word uh sentimentalism yeah and, like that was one of his big criticisms of it is that this was sort of pure sentimentalism um he he quotes from uh this novelist uh name i think he's a novelist uh yeah named uh wilfred sheed uh who was crippled by polio mm -hmm. um and he says you know talks yeah sheed says that he was sick and tired of being praised for his courage when he did not choose to contract polio and his and, and little choice to deal with he had little choice but to deal with his handicap so like like this whole idea of like um ebert doesn't like the idea that this is you know saying well merrick is courageous like merrick didn't have a merrick didn't have a choice in this and um so he says you know he also thinks that lynch doesn't deal with again this goes back to reviewers wanting the movie to be something else than what they got um didn't like sort of the way that uh even Lynch dealt with the, or the storytelling dealt with like the, with Merrick's speech, right. That he says, actually there was these surgeries they had to do. And this just sort of made it feel like it was this magical thing, which is actually really effective in the movie. I think mm -hmm. uh, that, that scene where they walk away and you sort of, mm -hmm. and they are sort of like, well, he's just sort of parroting back these things you say. Um, and it's interesting because I didn't know what to do with, with Treves at that point, if he was, mm -hmm. Because it almost seems like he was agreeing with the with the um, the governor of the hospital, and then Treves heard him say stuff he didn't that he didn't teach them, and it's that's this. I think that's just a sort of great moment where um, you get to the same point that you would have got a, you would have gotten to with um, 
with what Ebert wanted, but you get there in a different kind of way. And I actually think I like the way the movie does it better. Well, you know, um, Ebert's review is one of the most dyspeptic reviews I think I've, I've, I've encountered. Um, and, and, Ebert, and Ebert's always, you know, I mean, Ebert's, Ebert writes great negative reviews usually. Um, I like some of his reviews and I hated, hated this movie. But I feel like, uh, you know, you said last night you weren't in the mood, Sam. And I feel like Ebert, when he saw this movie, for some reason, he wasn't in the mood. Um, I think he's got, I, th I think he's got hold of the wrong end of the movie in a sense. Um, he, he keeps objecting to a movie that he thinks is, um, uh, somehow sentimentalizing Merrick because of his courage. I, I actually don't see the film doing that. Um, I, I, I think what the film, to me, and this is an important element in interpreting the film, to me, the film is as much about what other people make of Merrick as it is about Merrick himself. And in terms of sentimentalizing him, I mean, this is historical fact. Merrick really did build those cathedral models. Uh, Merrick really did move in fairly um, uh, polite society. Um, and, and whenever he had the operation in his mouth, I assume he just had the operation in his mouth before he met Treves. And so, I mean, there are things that are historically true. Um, the things that the movie introduces that are not historically accurate aren't things that Ebert particularly particularly picks up on. Um, so anyways, I, I feel like it's a review of, a, of by somebody who just um, was in a very bad mood for some reason. In fact, I almost went back to see if Ebert had, had uh, I, I almost went back to see what other uh, Lynch films Ebert had reviewed, because I had always thought of Ebert as somebody who was sort of a Lynchian fan, but I might be wrong about that, because clearly he doesn't kind of buy what David Lynch is trying to do in this film. Yeah, I, I think the thing you said there that I found so interesting was how really this movie isn't about Merrick as much as it's about the people looking at Merrick. And therefore it's about the viewer looking at Merrick too. Um, Cause there's, there's lots of really cool ways he goes about that. Like I find it interesting, you know, that you open uh, after, after the sort of opening scene with his mother, the kind of dreamlike scene with his mother, you, you go to the, um, Man, I'm gonna use the word freak show because that's what they call it in yeah. the, you know. Yeah. But yeah, I, I, I don't like that. I don't like to use that word. Yeah. But that's, you know, that's a, so. So you open on that, and um, what's interesting is you get to see Merrick almost right away. Like it's, it's not in my, in my memory. It's like, oh, they hide, they hide yeah. him, you know, um, hide him from the viewer. But you actually get to see him right away, but only really quickly and only in the shadows. Yeah. And then you have these other, and then it takes a while until you actually get to spend time seeing him. So it's like he gives you a little glimpse, and then he hides you, hides him from you. Like when, um, when the doctor is talking to the the mm -hmm. sort of college of doctors, he's behind this screen, so you see his silhouette, but you don't get to see him. So you find yourself intrigued. I find myself like intrigued. I want to see, I want to see this thing. And then he then he wears the hood, and it takes this takes all this time. And as I as I thought about it, it's like oh, Lynch's Lynch is thinking about me as a viewer and he's, 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 um, this is so much a movie about people viewing, um, viewing Merrick that he, he puts you in that position. And it's also about people questioning, at least, at least the thoughtful people in the movie questioning, how are we viewing Merrick and what are we doing with him? And I thought that was really powerful. And I, th I think it raises a really interesting question to which I don't very have a very good answer right now about what is the difference between sentimentality and genuine pathos? Um, because, you know, to, me, sentimentality, uh, in, implies a kind of, uh, it's kind of a cheap thrill and a pathos, pathos comes from a, a deeper place. And I will confess, maybe I was just in the right mood, Sam, but I, I cried twice in this film. 
I, I find myself weeping. Uh, uh, it, it was extremely cathartic, which I think is part of pathos. Um, uh, and, it, and it was in two scenes. It was in the scene with Mrs. Kendall when they did the Romeo and Juliet duet, which I can see how somebody like Ebert looked at that and just thought, oh, that's just ridiculous. But I don't know. I bought it. And then the other scene where I, where I wept was I was weeping with one of the characters. It's when he goes to Treves' house uh, and Treves' wife starts crying. Uh, and I and I cried right along with her. Uh, and to me, those felt like moments of pathos, not moments of cheap sentimentality. To me, they came from a really deep place in the sense that that here's a person who, if it weren't for his outside appearance, would have a very different kind of of life. Um, and so it was both this being caught between the fact that he's he's sort of being accepted, but he can never be accepted. Um, and and to me, that's that's that is genuine pathos. Yeah, it reminded me so much of visiting um, visiting my mom at work. Both my parents worked at the state hospital in Faribault, and it reminded me of of some of that and um, learning uh, learning as a, a small child to like kind of to not be afraid, you know, because because mm. because you're you know it. I will say that 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 was my my overall feeling of of watching this was I remember as a kid sometimes going into the 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 hospital buildings and, and like being afraid of the people. And, uh, it's, it's, when I think about it, it's actually really cool of my parents that they were like, no, we're going to, we're going to, we're not going to hide, hide these things from you. Like these are people and these are people who mm -hmm. are sick. These are people who have, you know, have different conditions. Um, and then, you know, I did some work, uh, my summers in college was working with people, uh, with pretty severe disabilities and, um, you know, some of the most, the most sort of powerful moments in my life were, um, working with, uh, so this is when I was in college, I was working with college age students. Um, and I mean, I, I think about, uh, you know, what it's like to, when you're 18 years old to change the diaper of a, mm -hmm. you know, 21 year old and to be like, you know what, like, or to help to help somebody shower at that age when you're the mm -hmm. same age as that person, and you know you get over all of that quickly. And some of the most powerful moments in there was realizing, and I, and I think there are Treves moments in this movie. Um, these moments where I realize I'm actually depending on them to help me help them, and mm -hmm. it's like so that I am not the savior figure who's coming in and cleaning them up. But but there are moments where it's like you have. To the to the degree they can communicate with me, you have to help me understand how I can help you, and mm -hmm. and and I can feel them struggling to try to to try to like tell me about their experience or tell me about what they need, and and those I mean so like uh, so I didn't cry during this movie, and I I've as I've gotten older I am a crier, but like I was so brought back to uh, firsthand experiences with things like this, so I, I really. Um, I, my heart broke for, uh, for Merrick. Um, and I, I felt myself in the position of, of some of the uh, people like Treves who I think, uh, especially as the movie goes on, like so desperately wants to help, but also that I, I, I found that the scene where, where Merrick just asks him, and it's funny cause it's pretty late in the movie. Merrick asks him like, can you, I don't know if he says, can you heal me or what he says? He says can you cure me? Yeah. And Merrick just, or, uh, Treves just says, I, I can't. And like that, there's something heartbreaking about that because you, when Merrick asked that question, you realize this whole time, he's probably kind of wondering like, is this, where is this leading? Yeah. Yeah. And he realizes it's not leading to that kind of change.
Yeah. No, that, that is an astonishing moment. It's the moment when you realize that Merrick is, um, in a sense, alienated from his own appearance. Mm -hmm. You know, that, uh, that, that he, he also feels like an elephant man. Uh, and, and so that, so it's not only the way others look at him, but even the way he looks at himself. And of course, you know, you have Treves who've given that order that no, uh, never should a mirror be brought into the room. And then of course you have the night porter, you know, thrusting the mirror in front of him and he's terrified by himself in a, in, in a sense. So, so to me that, that, you know, that, that kind of creates a sense that the, the monstrosity is, is outside of him. That the, mm -hmm. the, the monstrosity is not him in any kind of es essential way. But at the same time, it's a struggle for everyone to look past the monstrosity, even to a certain extent for himself. You know, he says at one point um, of his mother, I must have been a great disappointment to her. Um, but he also says to the end, it treves, to Treves, something along the lines of, um, you've helped me you, or you've enabled me to discover myself or claim myself. Some, it's, it's, a, it's, a line, it's a line like that. So he's also, in a sense, on an, on an arc. Um, and what's really interesting is that the film took out or, or did not follow the historical patent, the historical fact that the reason why he was on display was he hired himself out to be on display. Hmm. Um, when he was unable, he, he was trying to make a living uh, 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 on the streets of, of Leicester. And when it got to the point where his appearance was too uh, disturbing to people and he couldn't sell goods anymore, he actually went to a, um, a Bites kind of like character and sold himself uh, or, or hired himself, said, I want you to put me on display. So he was much more, it's interesting to me, he, he was much more of an agent in his own, he wouldn't have called it exploitation. He, 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 would, he would have seen it as, as was the case of uh, beggars in, in the ancient world. He would have seen that as a legitimate way of making a living, which is also the attitude a lot of the Victorians would have had towards what, as you said, they called freak shows. Mm -hmm. uh, that was a way of people with those disabilities to actually be able to make some kind of a living for themselves, even under horrible circumstances. Yeah. I, 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 another thing that I loved in this movie was the, um, and some of it was obvious to me and some of it, it, it took a while for me to get um, the, the, the kind of doubling of uh, bites and treves, you know, where you, your, your instinct is to, is to, think well what what bites is doing is really awful and it's interesting to hear that's that 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 part of the story that's that's not in the film um but then and you think of treves as this noble character but then about halfway through the movie treves basically is wondering am i just doing the same I mean, he's called out on it by yeah. the 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 head nurse um but it but then you but you see him not dismissing that and it that's kind of haunts him the rest of the movie of like are are we are we just did we just like up the clientele who are coming to see him? But is it, is this the same thing to go have tea with him? Is this just a, a fancier version of the freak show? Yeah. And there, there, there's at least three versions of that. There's Treves and there's bites. And then there's also Jim, you know, the, the, the night quarter, uh, each of them exploiting him in different ways and different angles and at kind of different levels of, of degradation. Um, and then the question becomes when he's on display in the theater, when Mrs. Kendall, you know, dedicates the pantomime to him, is, is that another version of it? Or is that actually the moment at which he is acknowledged for who he is and not simply being being put on display? That's um, the part I didn't think about. And I was reading about it this morning and there was a great uh, article from Sight and Sound where they were talking about it. And, and they were talking about the the framing of the the doctors at the beginning 
sort of applauding for Treves when you know and in in this scene and that is so much I mean he even has a curtain he pulls back I mean that is Treves as a ringmaster just like bites right yeah. and and yeah. you and, and and that you have that moment at the beginning and then the moment at the end is that you know is that the uh <laughs> the upper crust society applauding for themselves for accepting him into their society for this temporary thing and like and that hadn't occurred to me but then as I think about it it's like yeah that that kind of maybe is like 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 how much because when you think about um the scene it's after the the actress comes to see him and then they're reading the paper about how now he's going to become this popular thing for people to go see it's then i think it's the next tea he has and you can tell the people there mm -hmm. unlike the actress they don't want to be there but they're yeah. doing it really because this is the this is the thing to do you know and like and so if i think about that type of person i think i actually think again in the context of the movie i think the actress is genuine in what mm. she's saying but i don't know that anybody else is yeah 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 <laughs> you know um yeah. yeah and i will say uh, to think about the scene where you see jim uh, this is right before uh merrick is abducted uh i think the most terrifying scene in the film is when Jim brings the gawkers and they're at the window and then they come in and I mean, they're just out and out yeah. abusive to him. And that was the moment last night when I was my, my wife and kids are up at the cabin. So I was home alone in the, in a dark room late at night, pretty tired watching this. And I was genuinely terrified. And it's interesting because uh, a few scenes later is when Treves confronts him and he basically says, you're the monster. And it's like, Treves didn't need to say that. Cause like we knew like, like we were in that room too. And I was, it was interesting how monstrous the, the, all of the people in that room seemed and Merrick seemed like the one person who wasn't, you know? So, so, so Lynch managed to, um, managed to just show us that in that scene. I think that's, to me, that's probably one of the best executed moments in the movie. Yeah. That that scene was especially excruciating for me because I uh, I actually wasn't able to watch the movie in one fell in one fell swoop. I had to I had to pause it at that point for uh, for for a few hours, and so I and I so I knew the kidnapping was coming up. I had I I paused it right after Bite said my treasure, and so I spent the next couple of hours just kind of dreading the rest of it because that was when I you know as I watched the movie, you know certain scenes would come back to me. And, uh, and and once I saw that scene, I said, "Oh no! Now I know this is the point where he gets kidnapped, and it gets really gets really awful for a while." But you know, I want to go back a, a minute, Sam. To, you know, one, one more perspective on the various people that kind of exploit him or put him on display. Uh, I, I want to connect that a little bit with what you were saying about your your parents' vocation and um, how we tend to or uh, folks who who could use our help. And, and I was thinking about the that conversation between um treves and and the head nurse right and and he's sort of suggesting she doesn't care for merrick right and she says i i bathe him i feed him i clothe him you know i think i'm taking pretty good care of him it's compared to what to what you're doing and i thought that was a really that was a really telling moment that that's it's those people that are taking care of him every every day with his basic needs um, and I loved watching the arc of that young nurse who first, you know, dropped the plate, the bowl of oatmeal, because you knew that was coming, but it was okay. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know that was going to happen. And then she's the one who ends up really, I think, having genuine affection 
uh, for Merrick. Uh, yeah, and I love that she got to go to the theater. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, you know, there's like because not, I mean, not there's not a lot of people from that hospital who do, but that she because it almost I almost I read into that like is she the is she John's guest at that? Did he yeah. say her? Because it feels like that would make sense. You know, to to a certain degree. So, um, yeah, I I I I really love that. Um, I w- I want you to talk about the uh, the ending of this movie because it's a really interesting ending. And I felt like um, this was there were moments where I felt like I saw David Lynch show up. Um, sometimes they were just particular shots of um, coal fire coming out of big. Big oh, yeah. um, uh, smokestacks, yeah. and it, it part of it reminded me of of the. Um, did you watch the the second Twin Peaks run? Oh, those yeah. oh, episodes? Yeah. Oh, like sure. it, some of those images reminded me of the. Um, I think it's we call it the nuclear the nuclear test scene where like there's that oh, yeah. almost an entire hour of like. Yes. Um, uh, formalist kind of cloud imagery. It's so interesting. Like, like there, there were moments in the film where I was like, Oh, that's the guy who did that. Like I could tell how yeah, interested yeah. he was just in that kind of stuff. Um, but yeah, I want to, I'm curious to like, I feel like the end was um, I saw, I, I definitely saw David Lynch in the end too. So I'm curious your thoughts about the ending of the movie. Yeah. And of course that the boy, did, boy, did Ebert hate the end. Uh, <laughs> he said something like the elephant man or star child. You know, connecting with the connecting it with the infamous ending of two thousand one, um, yeah. I mean, and actually, it's an interesting question about you know how Lynch how Lynch ends his films. Um, I, I I would connect it actually most immediately with the other Lynch film we watched a while ago, which is the end of the Straight Story, right, where you look up into the stars. And I would also it's also an occasion to mention that uh, the same cinematographer Freddie Francis shot this film and and the Straight Story uh, for, for Lynch. Um, it's also, uh, it isn't star imagery, but there's also, um, at least cosmic imagery at the beginning of Eraserhead, uh, as well involving planets and asteroids. Um, you know, so Lynch loves the, loves to suggest these moments of, of transcendence. Um, and that's what I find interesting about, about Lynch. He really is somebody who's, um, I don't think he has any, um, he doesn't have any specific religious beliefs. He's a practitioner of transcendental meditation. Um, but I, but you know, I, he, Lynch believes in mystery. He, he, he thinks, he thinks there are, he thinks there is something mysterious about human life. Uh, even if he doesn't want to call it God, you know, he talks about his own inspiration as an artist. He doesn't know where it comes from. He says it comes out of the ether, uh, and then it kind of hits you. And so I think this notion that there's something beyond, uh, humanity, uh, is what he's trying to evoke in, in, in those moments. And of course, you know, we know that it's formally, it, and it, uh, closes the film with the opening image of the mother. Uh, and we've moved from the mother being terrified by the elephant to the mother sort of, um, well, as, as, uh, Merrick says, she had the face of an angel. So it's the angelic, uh, appearance of the mother. And I think it also, helps to remove the other thing that I could not stand about Ebert's review is he suggests there's a kind of moral opprobrium uh, if, if in fact Merrick has committed suicide. Um, we don't know why Merrick lay his head down. Um, it probably is what killed him, uh, but we don't know why. And so the film suggests that this was not an act of despair. This was an act of completion. And of course, it's preceded right, right before he gets in the bed. He looks at the cathedral and he says, Jesus' words on the cross, it is finished. And he lays down. 
And That's he signs problem. his name and lays down. Yeah, exactly. And 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 and, and in real life, Merrick was actually a devout Christian. Um, so I, I I just I just think it's saying that that Merrick has achieved all that he can achieve. His life has been fulfilled to the degree to which it can be fulfilled. And of course, the film adds the little detail that he's actually dying, which I, I don't know if that was true or not. Um, but at, at any rate, I think that you know it's a it's a beautifully. Uh, um, symmetrical uh, way to, to shape the film. Yeah, I, I'm sure there's no real connection here, but I also found it interesting. I was thinking about the the image the image of the face of the mother at the beginning and the end, and I thought of Persona with mm. the images of the face of the mother and the child and the in in the the unwanted child and all these things. And I was like, oh, that's really like that. That just struck me as interesting that we have that that in that movie we have at the beginning and the end the the faces and the child, and this is also the faces and the child. Um. Another th uh, something that that I was also wondering about is is the, and maybe you've you've already kind of mentioned this a little, but like the significance of the cathedral building, because um, this came up in some of the things I read about you know um, Merrick as artist, um, yeah. you know. Um, so I just was wondering your thoughts on that as like a, a symbol in the movie. Because they well, come back I, to that a lot. Yeah, I think I think one of the key things about, it, in addition to you know suggesting his faith without being explicit about it, although we know he's read a lot of the Bible and memorized the twenty third Psalm, uh, I think the key moment for that is when the nurse is looking at what he's doing, and and all you can see is the top of the the, the spire, and he says he has to use his imagination for the rest. And so I think that's part of uh, deepening the sense of the humanity of, of, of Merrick that he's that he has a full range of human capacities, including, ima including imagination. I think it also probably speaks to like that scene probably speaks to the fact that even in the hospital, he's kind of in a cage still a little bit. Like he's not free in the same way others are free. Like he, he can see what he can see from there. And that's, that's sort of, sort of it. Yeah. 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 Um, uh, one thing I found really interesting uh, connecting this to uh, last week's film. So these are both 1980, both black and white films, both uh, nominated for eight Oscars. And they both include, uh, they both share a significant line. Did you catch this? I'm not an animal. Yes. Uh, Jake, Jake LaMotta in prison is saying to himself, I am not an animal. I am not an animal. And one of the most famous lines from this movie is Merrick saying, I am not an animal. I thought that was really interesting. You know, in terms of both of these are these uh, kind of fascinating uh, biographical films um, and, and, and both having that as a theme to them. Yeah. And, and, and in a sense, both characters being, um, being classified as you know as, as animals, the Bronx you know the Bronx bull or or, or the or the elephant man, and both of them kind of struggling to become human beings um, to transcend whatever is animalistic about them. Uh, so in the case of Merrick, it's obviously physical. In the case of Jake Lamada, it's I don't know what you would say psychological, uh, temperamental. Yeah. So what was going on in 1980 where that message was just ringing <laughs> around in art? <laughs> That's, that's a very good question, Sam. I don't. I don't know. 1980 was not. It was not a great year for the economy. Uh, but I don't know if that has anything to do with animals. <laughs> um, another thing, and this is just a smaller note. Uh, we talked a couple weeks ago about seeing young Chris Cooper, and Chris Cooper was not particularly young in Lone Star. But compared to the Chris Cooper I'm used to, I forgot Anthony Hopkins was in this. And it was fascinating to see uh, what I would call young Anthony Hopkins in a in a movie. I don't. I'm not familiar with his career, sort of his pre Hannibal Lecter career, very much. So mm -hmm. it was interesting to see him. And I so 
right before we went on air, I uh, I looked it up, and he's he's actually exactly my age. He's forty three years old in this movie, but uh, I actually I really I found him really compelling, especially in like I said in some of the silences in this movie of uh, both he and the actress who plays his wife have moments where they're not saying something. I mean, this is obviously a movie that also involves a lot of reacting. Um, and, uh, but also sort of silent, uh, uh, especially, uh, Treves has these moments where he's just sort of trying to come to terms with what he's doing. And I, I, I just, I thought he was, I thought Hopkins was really great in this. Well, which is especially remarkable given how, uh, angry he was about the film being directed by Lynch. Um, uh, he, that there, there was a, a moment where he gave uh, Lynch a complete tongue lashing, uh, saying that he was not qualified to teach that to, to direct this film. And in fact, there's there was one moment, the the scene in the house when he comes in uh, with Merrick, and Lynch told him to look in the mirror, and uh, Hopkins said, "No, my character wouldn't do that." Um, so it was uh, years later he evidently, evidently apologized to Lynch, but he was evidently quite difficult on uh, on the set. And yet Lynch gets this great performance out of him, including that beautiful moment. Since we've been talking about lacrimose moments, that beautiful moment when he catches that tear uh, as Trees first sees uh, first sees Merrick. Mm-hmm. The uh, the other two great things about that, I think I could just spend forever talking about the tea party with with Trees and his wife. Um, and this one of these is is a directorial choice. Is the amount of time you spend watching Treve's wife come down the stairs and come around that corner, because this is about seeing him, and you realize she hasn't seen him yet, and we're one, and we've seen people, we've seen their first impressions so mm-hmm. often that that was in the best possible way excruciating to watch her come down the stairs and just think. I and I'm just thinking to myself, like, please just like, <laughs> like be calm, like. And I'm and in my head I'm thinking, well, of course he's prepared her for this, but there's just this moment of like, I, I just want this to go well. I want this to go well. And I thought, as a as a directorial choice, the amount of time he spent before she came around that corner was brilliant. Yeah. And the other thing from that scene, um, which is really subtle and interesting, and and this again circles back to what I was saying about my mom is when they're looking at the pictures on the mm. mantelpiece and he asks about their children and he says, Oh, they're out playing with their friends, which yeah. they don't have to say it, but they were like, we, yeah. we couldn't do this to them. We couldn't do this to you, but there is this sense of you're being denied part of our life because, yeah. you know, and I thought that that hit me, that hit me really, really hard. And again, that's a very subtle moment, but I thought that was really beautifully done. And it is interesting in that connection, Sam, that kind of the, the climactic moment when he just, when he declares his identity is after having been harried by children, right? Even mm-hmm. even though even though he's you know wearing uh, wearing his what you might call his disguise, you know, Mister, why is your head so big, Mister? Why is your head so big? Um, and so it does remind you that the response of children uh, can be fairly unpredictable and sometimes cruel. Yeah, yeah. Speaking of the 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 sort of hooded uh, disguise or 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 whatever. Um, I'm curious if, and you may not know this, but like, is that, uh, is that how Merrick went around in? Yeah. Sort of yeah, like yeah, yeah. I did, I did a teeny little bit of research, just, you know, Wikipedia kind of research. And there's a picture on the website about Merrick of that hood. Okay. Uh, cloak. So yeah, that is, that is evidently accurate. Okay. By the way, t- we, 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 should, we should just say for, uh, to make sure we set the record straight that his first name was actually Joseph. Joseph. Right. <laughs> right. For some reason, dreams got that wrong. In fact, in fact, in Treves' uh, volume where he wrote about Merrick, 
at the beginning of, of the essay, he writes Joseph, and then he crosses it out and writes John. So we're not quite sure why. There was a John Merrick buried in the same uh, graveyard with his parents, but there, he was not related to the family. Interesting. Yeah, uh, yeah, because I saw that. I mean, I, I saw that the the name was different, but I didn't know that that goes back to Treves. Yeah, yeah, that's that's really interesting. Anyhow, the the I think that the 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 hooded figure of Merrick is such a striking image. Mm -hmm. I mean, the the poster is pretty amazing for this yeah. movie. It's a very simple image, but but again, it it's what drew me to it in 1985 was that image. But also, then I love the. I think it's. I think this is how this this goes. The the kind of dream sequence in the middle of the movie where you the hood is I think it's when the hood is hung up and Merrick is sleeping or drifting to sleep and it goes into the eye hole and oh, you know yeah. as the image of like going into his mind and into his dream. I thought that was like a really great choice. Mm -hmm. And um also that felt like like a very Lynchian sequence too, like the, that whole dream sequence. Um, from what I know of David Lynch, that felt like okay. Here here's where he, he's letting himself really be the 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 filmmaker I know. Um, <laughs> do you have uh, other things you want to talk about with this movie? Well, I wanted to mention a couple of things. Um, one is just kind of in terms of the production of the film that um, Lynch himself wanted to do the makeup, uh, and he worked for a long time on 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 some. Uh, a prosthetic and it was uh, unfortunately a complete failure so they they brought uh, a different makeup artist in and um he uh it, it took mary it took a uh, hurt was in the uh, took seven hours every day uh to put the mate to, to, to put the makeup on and so um the artist uh it's chris chris Car christopher carpenter i think it was um there was no such thing as a uh, academy award for makeup at the time and so uh, that actually helped create the Academy Award for the next year, which was then won by um, Best Makeup, was won the next year by American Werewolf in Paris. So anyway, that's just a, just a bit of trivia. But the other thing I just want to point out is uh, to connect it with a couple of other films, as you, as you were saying, um, this is also a film that has um, a prologue uh, in, in the same way that we had a, a kind of prologue in Raging Bull. Uh, we had a prologue, of course, in Dr. Strangelove, and we even had kind of a prologue in, in Get Low. Uh, so just in terms of, you know, that kind of formal introduction to the character through a kind of prologue to set it up, it's, it's you know, it, it bears uh, connections with those films. I also think it's interesting to think about if we're continuing to make the Raging Bull connections, right? Thinking about uh, actors going through some physical transformations. I mean, um, there's obviously... Hertz transformation is is different than um, than De Niro's, but you know the idea of spending six or seven hours a day when he was filming, putting on, yeah, ha having these prosthetics put on, and then I think it was like an hour or two to take off every day too. Yeah. So like his the length of days that he had to go through. I think he he said uh, that that David Lynch um, actually came up with a way to make him hate acting <laughs> uh, was what was what Hertz said about it. But, but, but think about thinking about those two performances also coming in the same year of um, actors who in very different ways become unrecognizable as who they are um, mm -hmm. and, and, and really pretty amazing transformations, I think. Yeah, exactly. So. Yeah. All right. Well, man, I, I really, I, I didn't, I wasn't excited to watch this last night, but even in this conversation, I'm realizing how much I really thought this movie was great and interesting uh, in lots and lots of ways. What do you have for us next week? Well, I figure we, we got to change gears a little bit. Um, so I think we need to do a comedy. And uh, 
So I think I think we should do one of the greatest of American comedies, which is uh, Billy Wilder's Some Like It Hot uh, from 1959, which I confess I had forgotten it's in black and white because I was going to say, let's switch the color now, but it's in black and white. Uh, well, that's okay. But anyway, it's uh, we haven't done a comedy in a while, so I think that's what we should do next week. That sounds great. I actually have never seen this movie, um, but I'm I, I love I love the people in it. I'm really excited um, to watch it. I'm very thankful that you didn't say let's stay in 1980 and watch Ordinary People because <laughs> as much as I as much as I have uh, respect for that movie too, I. I I don't know that I need that this week as well. No, I don't think so. <laughs> so, uh, well, I am very excited to uh, to watch that. Uh, Barrett, thanks so much for recommending this film um, and for joining me in this conversation. This this is maybe one of my favorite conversations we've had about uh, about one of these movies, and I didn't expect it from uh, from this film. So uh, that's all the time that we have. We will be back next week to talk about some like it hot in the video store.